Well, good morning once again. And again, welcome to Grace Community Church. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, especially if this is your first or even second time here uh, gathering with us, we're glad you're here. We're glad you've chosen to worship with us this morning. My name is Neil Manning. I'm one of the elders here at Grace. And um, Brad, who is the, the normal teaching elder who would be up here this morning, is, is out of town. He and Allison are, are away visiting friends. They are suffering for Jesus in a distant land of Hawaii. Uh, but be in prayer for them as they, they visit and uh, travel back uh, later this week into the weekend. Uh, and as we try to forgive him for not inviting us along, I want to remind you again, you've heard it a couple times already, of tonight, please come out to the Money Pennies. Uh, the, the fellowship will be great, the show will be great, and you can't beat Free Sunny Skies ice cream. Um, so as uh, with fireworks and stars and stripes on our mind, I want to take the moment and, and just recognize those who have uh, served to protect our country. So if you have served in any branch of the military, past or present, would you please stand so we can recognize you and say thank you? Thank you. You can be seated. Military personnel uh, know as well as anyone the importance of unit cohesion and the dangers of discord uh, among the ranks. <clears throat> Serving long hours next to each other and then living with the person you've served long hours with uh, can be its own sort of suffering at times. Uh, but when we, when we suffer together uh, against a common enemy, a common environment, that tends to form a bond that is not easily broken. Uh, and it's uh, a lot of times that bond simply revolves around the environment, what, what, what we've been through together, and we tend to simply hold the peace until the unit travels home and you can go your separate ways. But that's not real peace, not real unity. Uh, and, and that's what I want to speak to you about this morning is a type of unity that goes deeper, one that uh, is not easily broken. A unity of purpose and of mind is what I want you to consider this morning. Christ has secured for believers unity with each other by bringing us into union with himself, into the family of God. By maintaining peace among family members, it can be hard work. I want us to look at a passage this morning in Philippians 2 to find out how we here at Grace Community Church can enjoy unity that comes from God, having one mind as we serve God. So as you turn to Philippians chapter 2, it'll be on the screen. Um, I'd ask, as is our custom, that you'd stand with me in reverence to the Word of God as we read our passage. We're reading from the ESV, verses 1 through 13. So if there's any, any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. 
Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Pray with me. Father, thank you for bringing us to this time of worship and study. Thank you for your word. Give us eyes that we may see, hearts willing to obey, and lives that will conform to the image of Christ and bring you glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. I have known for a while now that Brad was going out of town and wouldn't be here this weekend and that I would be preaching. So I tried to be diligent. I tried to work hard, get all my work done ahead of time so then I can relax, right, leading up to the, to the big morning. Um, so I thought I did a good job. I studied. Uh, I wrote. And then... Two weeks ago, I thought I was done. It was almost completely done, maybe just a few tweaks here and there. And then that Sunday, two weeks ago, Brad preached my sermon. <laughs> what do I do? Okay, do I have enough time? I need patience, patience with Brad. <laughs> Forgiveness, yes, I need to forgive Brad for stealing my sermon. <sighs> now, did I, did I really react like that? No, no, it was, I'm joking, of course. Uh, he did preach pretty much what I wanted to say. But is that a bad thing? Absolutely not. Um, it, it's, it's a good thing. Um, two weeks ago, Brad was in a study. It, it, we're in a study of Hebrews. We're taking a little break from it this morning. But he was in Hebrews 12, and we we're cross-referencing Matthew 18. Uh, it was... It was a blessing for me. It was challenging to uh, understand more about church discipline. And even last week, when he spoke on loving those who may not actually call themselves followers of Christ, that was a blessing and a challenge to me. Uh, Some of you may know or may have seen on the city four or five, maybe six weeks ago, I posted a link to an article about uh, how to deal with complainers within the church or are they really complainers? How to deal with differences, different preferences and opinions. And all these things kind of seem to flow together. So it's not that we're preaching the same sermon, but I think it's a fantastic work of God that we can look in Scripture, any passage of Scripture, and we'll see different perspectives of the same gospel message. And what's more, you get a little glimpse into what's going on through the minds of the elders that God has brought to us that 
unity and, and discipleship and discipline. All these things are closely knit together and how it's been on our minds recently. Uh, so this morning as we look in Philippians 2, there will be some overlap, but it, it's the same gospel message. So, like Paul, I can say from Philippians, he says, uh, to write the same things is not a bother for me, and it's good for you. Unity. It's a wonderful thing to be in harmony with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Have you ever dreaded visiting family? And, uh, well, for some of you, maybe that's your in-laws. I think others, you have more difficulty with your own family than you do with your in-laws. But have you feared getting around the dinner table? Because you know, you know that the tension and the strife are about to erupt again. It's the same story year after year. Every time you get together for Thanksgiving, it's the same culprits. That's not unity. That's discord. Now contrast that with when you get together with your closest loved ones. You don't always have to agree on every single thing, but they know you would do anything to help them. And you know they would do the same for you. That's the type of unity that belongs in the family of God. In Psalm 133, David both prayed and exclaimed, Behold how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. That's what we've been given. That's what we need to preserve. In God's power, we fight to keep that kind of harmony in the church. In Philippians, just a few verses earlier from our our passage this morning in chapter 1, verse 27, Paul lays the groundwork for our text. He writes to the entire church of Philippi, whom he loved, "...only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ." So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now look at the opening verses of, our, of chapter 2. So if there is any, any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, if there is any any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. The first thing I want you to see today is that the call to unity is too important to ignore. We must answer it, and we must answer it with humility. We must answer it for the sake of the gospel. Unity among the Philippians was important to Paul's joy. And can I suggest to you this morning that our unity here at Grace is important to God's joy. The same God who wrote through Paul to them then is the same God speaking to us now. These if statements that Paul makes are not mere rhetoric. They're not fluff. They're not filler. He's pointing out what truly exists. We don't have time to dig too deeply into it this morning, but the home group notes will allow you to go back to chapter 1 and see that Paul marks out point by point that, yes, these things have occurred. They do exist. 
So he says, in effect, you have to do this. You have to find a way to love your Christian brother and sister. Yes, even that one you don't like or the one who has done you wrong. But catch his tone. He doesn't simply command them. He's an apostle. He could have done that, but he doesn't. He pleads with them from within the context of the love of God. The Philippians were Paul's partners in the gospel, and he loved them. So he sends them a heart plea. It would make me happy if you came together and treat each other the way the family of God ought to treat each other. Answering the call to unity is important because it is who you were called to be in the gospel of God. I can't command you to love the guy two rows from you. God's already done that. But I can stand here and plead with you. Love each other like you ought to. Note also that you cannot obey this command or this plea in isolation. It must be done in community. It makes no sense to try and maintain or preserve the unity of one. If you think you've been given the gift of individualism, that's not a gift. Set that idea aside. When God saved you, you were saved into the community of faith. When he adopted you, he adopted you into his family. And in the family, there will be strife and discord, but we've been given unity. Now we need to work together to maintain it. How do we do this? Look at verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Humility. We need to set aside our self-importance. We need to realize that God loves more than you can possibly imagine that brother or sister who annoys the mess out of you. And it's time that we start treating him or her as a child of God. To do that means we have to give up some of our pride and our rights, even the right to be offended. That's a right that it seems like everybody today is exercising in abundance. I like how Paul, even in his appeal to humility, demolishes the world's notion of what humility is. We can easily fall into the same mentality, the the world's thinking here as well. If you're going to call yourself humble, You have to forget about yourself because you're good for nothing. You're worthless. You shouldn't own anything because you should have given it all away. You can't be happy because if you're happy, that means you're serving yourself and not others. You can't call yourself humble and do any of these things. That's the world's thoughts. It's not God's. Look at what Paul says. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. If you have ever fallen into the trap of the world's way of thinking about humility, it's time to set that aside. Actually thinking so much about depreciating yourself is an affront to God as an image bearer and as a form of of pride. You too are a child of God, an image bearer, whom God has given gifts and responsibilities. So he's saying, use those gifts to serve that worrisome brother. 
as if he were more important than you. It's, more, <clears throat> it's important to answer the call to unity for the sake of your own spiritual maturity, for the sake of others within the family of God, and because it's what pleases God. I can hear you thinking, I know humility is hard already, but you don't know what this guy did to me. How am I supposed to be of the same mind as him or her? You're right. I don't know. I don't have to know. The command is there. The answer is the same to all of us, regardless of what has happened. Look to Jesus. That's our second point this morning. Look to Jesus as both the source and example for your humility, which leads to, or you could say facilitates or enables, both unity and exaltation. Look to Jesus as both the source and example for your humility, which facilitates or enables both unity and exaltation. For me, it's neat to see how Jesus serves both as source and example of humility. Paul said that we should be of the same heart and mind and have this mindset common among us. What mindset? What mind? In his letter to the Corinthians, Paul says that we have the mind of Christ. But here it's a little bit more complicated. And I'll tell you why. Because when he was writing this letter, perhaps he was dictating it to, to Timothy. In the Greek, he actually leaves out a verb in the second half of verse 5 that would have cleared up any questions of translation or interpretation. There are two primary ways to interpret verse 5, and, and these are, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. In this translation, Jesus serves as our example. Think like he did. Do things like he did. We need to see that Christ's humility and then be of the same mind as him. The second way is this. Act in this way as it befits those who are in Christ Jesus. You see the difference? Here, Christ serves as the reason and source of our ability to preserve unity through humility. We need to be of the same mind with one another because of who we are in Christ. There are contextual reasons to prefer the second interpretation, essentially saying you were called into the family of God for humble, loving service. Now, fulfill your calling. This follows Paul's pattern of first declaring who we are in Christ and then saying how we ought to live in Christ. Where God calls, he equips. You can almost picture him there under house arrest, dictating this letter to Timothy, addressed to the church family who partnered with him in the gospel. He pleads, be united because it's fitting for those who love Jesus. This Jesus who, and then as his mind settles and focuses on the beauty of Christ, he practically breaks into song. And that's exactly what we have here. Uh, verses 6 through 11 are referred to as the Christ hymn. Not only for its content, but its meter. There is poetic meter going on in here. And he just unravels at the beauty of what Christ, who Christ is and what he has done. That's exactly what we have. Verses 6 through 11 make up this Christ hymn. 
Paul traces the wonderful work of Christ from his humility, service, and sacrifice to the union we have with him, with the Father because of him, the exaltation he receives, and the glory brought to God by Christ's obedience. No wonder Paul stops to sing his praise. Jesus is the one who makes it so important that we serve each other in love and humility. Look to Jesus. Perhaps you're here and you don't quite understand the importance of church unity. You may not grasp completely who Jesus is or Jesus Christ's relationship to Christians. He was much more than a messenger bearing witness to the truth. He is truth. He did more than show us the way to God. He himself is the way. He did much more than give us an example to follow. By his death on the cross, bodily resurrection, glorification, he secured for his people union with him and unity with each other. In short, God became man to purchase salvation for rebels who would turn to look to Jesus. Jesus takes those who trust in him and brings them into communion with the Father. If Jesus is the source of our unity, does that mean we toss out this first idea of him also being our example? Absolutely not. All throughout the New Testament, we are told to follow him, pattern our lives after him, be conformed to the image of Christ. We will never do the things that he did because who he was and what he did was unique in redemption, but he is our chief exemplar. Jesus was both servant and savior. A lot could be said about what form of God and form of a servant mean and what it, exactly it was that he emptied himself. The simple explanation is that God became man, and in so doing, Jesus divested himself, listen to this, of the prerogative and the privilege to use his power and position as God. While remaining fully God, and remember back to our earlier in our study of Hebrews chapter 5, he learned obedience. The Son submitted himself to the will of the Father. He set aside his rights and privileges. The implications for us should start becoming obvious. Are we willing to set aside our rights for our fellow believer? You know, that one you can't stand. Are you willing to lay down your right to be offended? Are you willing to give up respect and love that an image bearer deserves, especially from another follower of Christ? All too often we think we understand the situation and motive of the other person. We look out for our own interests instead of the interest of others. We forget how much we've been forgiven. I forget about the plank in my eye when I look at the splinter in my brother's eye, the one that bothers me so much more than my plank. In his letter to the Corinthians, Paul scolded the church for their conflict, and they brought each other to court. He told them it was shameful Why not let yourselves instead be defrauded for the sake of protecting the name of Christ? It is for Christ that we humbly serve our brother 
And it's for her sanctification that we love our sister more than our rights and our comfort. For Jesus, his humility, obedience, love, and service, you might say earned him the right to be exalted as God. He remained God throughout, but his right to be praised was validated because he went through complete sacrifice and triumphed. What about us? Again, Jesus is our example. He sets the pattern we see all over Scripture that suffering produces glory. Humility results in exaltation. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. We will not become divine, but we will be partakers of the divine nature. Our ability to enjoy goodness of heaven is expanded through our work in unity. When we exercise faith and obedience, we are investing in greater reward when our hope is realized. We will be vindicated for doing what is right, not for asserting our rights. Why do we preserve unity? How do we humble ourselves? Look to Jesus. The final two verses of our passage and our final point show the amazing way Paul progresses his argument, but the message remains the same. We are to work at this unity thing, to pursue love and humility, because God is at work in you to do it. Work out your own salvation. We've been saved to something. Now, make it a reality. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, John the Baptist would say. Or do the works that is befitting of your salvation. Preserving and maintaining harmony will take hard work. In the family of God, we have a responsibility to one another. We are to work for our maturity, for the sanctification of other believers, and the glory of God. Paul pleaded with the Philippians to answer this call while he was absent. You might say that your elders or your home group leaders or maybe your accountability partner is pleading with you to remain faithful, to answer the call in their absence. What kind of work serves the cause of unity? Perhaps the most important work is prayer. Pray for that Christian brother or sister that annoys or offends you. And I'm not talking about the type of prayer you just thought of. The one that says, Lord, you better deal with him before I do. (laughs) Or show him how wrong he is. And then fix him. I'm talking about the prayer, real prayer, that seeks the blessing of that other individual. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a name familiar with many of you. He said once that I can no longer condemn or hate a brother for whom I pray no matter how much trouble he causes me. Prayer for another person will bring about change in your heart, in your perspective, and the Lord may even use you to answer that prayer in the life of the other for blessing and spiritual growth in your brother or sister. After prayer, hmm, we have to get down to the nitty-gritty. We may have to forgive or seek forgiveness. Some of you may be familiar with the Westminster Confession of Faith. That's where we read of the chief end of man 
to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Forever. Later on, in another section dealing with sin, the ministers encourage the church this way. He that scandalizes his brother or the church of Christ ought to be willing by a private or public confession and sorrow for his sin to declare his repentance to those that are offended, who are thereupon to be reconciled to him and in love to receive him. We all have a responsibility to one another. Whether you are the offended or the offender, you have a responsibility to your fellow believer. If you don't believe me, look at these two passages from Matthew. One we looked at two weeks ago from Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. And from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and present your offering. In Matthew 18, we should be aware of the steps of church discipline. If you are the one sinned against, or if you have a personal awareness of another believer's unrepentant sin, and we'll dig a little deeper into that in home group. You have an obligation to speak to him or her. You have a duty to humbly and lovingly try to bring that brother back into harmony with the family of God. And every time they repent, you forgive. In Matthew 5, your brother has something against you because you did something against him. If somehow you realize that you have sinned or wronged your brother in any way, you have a responsibility to seek and make it right. If you say something disrespectful or offensive, you have to admit it, apologize, and seek reconciliation. If you promise to do something and fail to see it through, you're bound to make restitution. If you do something which becomes a stumbling block, perhaps a misuse of your liberty, and causes your brother to stumble, I urge you, repent and seek to be rejoined to fellowship with your brother and to Christ. At this point, you may be tempted to think that every little difference of opinion amounts to sin. This is not true. God has created and gifted us differently, and there are areas in which those differences should flourish. Remember this, that biblical unity is not uniformity. Several years ago, when I served in the military, I spent some time overseas, and I spent day in and day out working, living with folks who were raised differently than me. They looked differently than me. They had a different personal background and culture than me. But yet we read the same scripture. We prayed to the same God. We worshiped together because we were united in one faith And one spirit. That year I began learning a valuable lesson to appreciate the diversity that God has put into his church. Diversity is not a hindrance to unity. It's what makes unity possible and necessary to preserve. God built diversity into his church. We need each other. Diversity is something we foster, not force. Learn to distinguish those non-sinful differences, perhaps differences of personality, 
preference, style, opinion against those differences that do result from sin. When one diverges from the faith, either in doctrine or in practice. If you have ever felt the need to apologize to your brother or sister in Christ, then thank God for this work in your life. If you have never actually sought reconciliation, then yield to what the Spirit is doing in your life. Do I work out my salvation, or is it God? Yes, and be thankful for it. We have a lot of hard work to do if we're to maintain the unity that God has given this church. We need to labor in the strength that only he can give. If you keep reading in Philippians, you'll see in chapter 4, Paul pleads with two ladies, Yodia and Syntyche, to come together. We don't know any more about these ladies or what the issue was between them. We know that they loved the Lord and actually worked with Paul in the gospel. They worked well alongside others, but something came between them. We know it wasn't doctrinal because Paul would have cleared it up right there. He was not afraid to call someone out for their sin and set straight the record of faith. I'm glad we don't know any more about them because Yodia and Syntyche could be any one of us. I'm glad we don't know what they were fighting over because it could be anything, the same things that come between you and me. So let me plead with you one more time. Don't fight a believer who offends you. Don't flee at the first sign of confrontation. Don't freeze at the thought of seeking forgiveness and reconciliation. The work of unity is too important. In that Matthew 5 passage, the one who remembered his offense was at the altar, about to offer his sacrifice. Jesus said to leave the sacrifice, that gift, and be reconciled to his brother, and then return and be reconciled to God. Jesus is the Lamb of God, slain from the foundation of the world. When he invites us to his table, he invites us into communion with him and union with each other as we celebrate the sacrifice for us. As we prepare our hearts to come to the Lord's table, If you remember that you have sinned or have an issue with a brother, can I suggest that you refrain from taking the elements this morning until you go and seek reconciliation? First be reconciled to your brother, then come. Come together to celebrate reconciliation in the Lord. If forgiving or seeking forgiveness is not possible in the immediate future, and the Lord has placed within you the willingness in your heart, then come to the table where you can find freedom and forgiveness, and then go in the strength of the Spirit to follow through on the works of salvation. If you are here and you've not yet come into communion with God through a relationship based on faith in Jesus, this is a family meal which is not meant for you. I'd ask you to refrain from taking of the elements. You may remain in your seat or come forward and simply not partake. But if you want to experience this union, I say it again for you. Look to Jesus. Let's pray. 
And as I pray with the elders, deacons, and worship team come forward. We are urged to examine ourselves when we come to the Lord's table so we don't partake in an unworthy manner. We should not cling to any sin or any behavior, the cost of which is at the expense of our brother or sister in the Lord. If you have a broken and contrite heart, Jesus says, come and drink freely of the waters of life. Commune with him and celebrate his sacrificial victory over sin and death. Lord, we thank you for your salvation and the unity that you purchased for your followers. Forgive our sin and teach us to forgive. Thank you for dying our death. Enable us to live according to your power and example. Grant us oneness of heart and mind as we seek your glory. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.